Father, we thank you for uh, today. We thank you once again for this month uh, that we are starting on this Sunday, month of thankfulness, a month of just simply thinking about you and how good you are and how good you are to us and how you are growing the fruit of joy in our hearts, uh, looking for your grace in every uh, situation and circumstance. Lord, help us to see those, those times, those things that you're doing. We thank you for your word that reveals to us all these truths about who you are and what you're doing, both in our lives and in your plan for this world. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. According to a news website, there are a few, these are a few of the hardest places to reach in the world. Now, obviously, we already know of places like climbing the summit of Mount Everest, but here are some you perhaps have not heard of yet. Now you're about to. The first one is the North Youngest Road, located in Bolivia. It's known for its extreme narrowness, sharp turns, and dangerously fatal drops. And as such, it's earned the nickname Death Road. No, that's not the name of a heavy metal band. That's just the name of this road here. <laughs> but what this looks like is it looks like the ultimate game of your childhood game of chicken, right? <laughs> Who's going to blink first? Secondly, we have, and I, I'm going to try to get through this name here. Fagradus Fjall. I'm not going to say it again. That's, your, that's the one time you're getting. <laughs> a volcanic mountain in Iceland. Uh, it's recently become more well-known because it has been continuously erupting for some time. To reach this spot, one must hike across unforgiving terrain and not get trapped by the ever-changing lava flows. That's quite a view, though, uh, for the most adventurous types. And lastly, we have a ledge in Norway named Trolltunga, which you can probably already gather is translated as the troll's tongue, right? Now, the spot itself may look serene here overlooking this fjord, which is why most people, or, or not most people, which is why some people go there to get married. But to get there, you have to hike a grueling 8 to 10 hour trek through dangerous terrain. How many ladies here would have liked to do that on your wedding day? That's the only way of getting there, too. Looking at this picture, it, my only thought is, did that bride, certainly that bride didn't make that hike in those heels and in that wedding dress, right? She had to have brought those up with her. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at Jesus revealing to his disciples while they were partaking in the last Passover meal, he would observe with them before his arrest and crucifixion. He said, little children, I am still with you a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Unlike the places we opened up our time with, which were possible to go to, albeit extremely difficult to get to, Jesus had divulged to his disciples that where he was going, they could not go. Yet. That yet part is what we'll focus on today. And that yet part gives us all the hope we need to live in this dark world. 
Before that, though, Jesus then spends the next couple of verses describing how he wanted his disciples to interact with one another by loving one another the way he had been portraying and exemplifying love. And by that, they would show this dark and evil world what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. We spent last week delving into that and how Jesus' definition of love and what it looks like, short definition, humble and selfless service, is radically different from the world's very selfish and very self-centered definition of love. Now, we spent a whole 40-minute message just on that explanation last week. But as one biblical scholar points out, Simon Peter probably didn't even register anything Jesus had said in verses 34 through 35 that we took a look at last week about loving one another as he had loved them. them. All of that most likely went in one ear and out the other. Why? Because Peter was fixated on what Jesus had just said one sentence before all of that that we read in verse 33. Jesus had told them in that verse that while he had already made this same statement to the religious authorities that he refers to as the Jews, which made sense to the surrounding and eavesdropping disciples since the religious authorities were not doing what God wanted them to do, now Jesus was directing that very same statement to them as his disciples. Where he was going, they could not come. That revelation was very disturbing to Peter, who loved Jesus, had given everything up in his earthly life to follow him as his disciple, and was the one recorded in the Gospels to give the most heartfelt and direct declaration of belief in Jesus as the Messiah and God himself. Now, all of a sudden, Jesus just dropped a ton of bricks on them all and told them that there would be a time when Peter and the other ten disciples would not be able to physically be with him. What in the world? Imagine being there. That certainly made no sense to any of them, especially Peter. Well, we covered in verse 30, or when we covered verse 33, we talked about how that verse is in direct connection with the glorification that both God the Son and God the Father would derive from God the Son's complete and thorough obedience to the Father, even going so far as to be nailed to a cross. Because of that inextricable connection between that process and these two members of the Trinity, the entire process of crucifixion and resurrection, along with the coming ascension, could only occur between the two of them and could not include any fallen, sinful human beings. The result of this experience of obedience of God the Son towards God the Father directly benefited fallen, sinful human beings in winning salvation from their sin and gifting eternal life, but that experience itself could only involve these two members of the Trinity. As such, Jesus must go through his impending crucifixion and resurrection alone and only with God the Father. No one else could go where he was going. 
But obviously, Peter wasn't catching any of that. He wasn't letting on to any of that. He was only making a physical connection to Jesus' literal location. And so at first, asks a clarifying question. That's where we pick back up this morning. So if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to John chapter 13. We're going to be picking back up in verse 36. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John 13, 36, or look it up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. This is what we read. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. And taken with the immediate context of what Jesus just said about his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, we can understand what Jesus is getting at with his response to Peter in verse 36, when he says, where you go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Church tradition tells us that Peter was also crucified. This is immediately connected to him, that where Jesus is going, Peter can't go yet, but he will. Peter was also crucified, but done so upside down, for he didn't want to be killed the same way as the Holy Son of God. In a literal sense, Peter would follow Jesus in crucifixion about 30 years later from this statement, during the reign of the Roman Emperor Nero. In the same way, Peter will be resurrected along with the rest of the believers in Jesus who have died before he comes back, be reunited with his soul that is with Jesus right now, and have the same post-resurrected body Jesus had at his ascension. So, if you think about it, in both a literal and theological standing, understanding, these words of Jesus to Peter would all come true. Where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will. And in a biblical theological understanding, the same future awaits us. We may die a natural death. We may die a martyr's death for our faith in Jesus. Or Jesus may come back for us before that point. In any case, our natural, physical, sin-riddled, falling-apart bodies will be transformed into glorified resurrection bodies souls reunited with those resurrection bodies and ascend or taken up into the clouds to be with Jesus forever. These transformed, glorified resurrection bodies will be the transition between the two worlds we will ever experience. We know full and all too well the world we live in now. But when we receive our prophesied resurrection bodies, we will be fully transported to the perfect eternal world. We'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, get into that a little bit in a few minutes. Uh, for now, as Peter is famous for doing, Peter responds with his usual brand name, initial knee-jerk reaction, blurting out his incredulity at such a seemingly ridiculous statement by Jesus that there would ever be a time when Peter could not be with him. Verse 37, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Now before we bash Peter too much, his heart's in the right place. 
even comes right out and declares to Jesus that he was even ready to give up his life in devotion and faithfulness to Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God. I wonder how many of us would even make that declaration to Jesus. But as one biblical scholar notes, Peter both doesn't know himself as well as he might have, nor does he have any clue the spiritual warfare he would soon be put through. The entire kingdom of Satan was at work, directly targeting Jesus, Jesus' mission, and Jesus' disciples. Satan had already succeeded, in his mind anyway, at leading one of Jesus' disciples to betray Jesus. Now Satan would soon about, be about to target the rest of Jesus' disciples. And who do you think Satan had his sights set on next? Who is the disciple who had been the most vocal about his belief and loyalty to Jesus as the Messiah? None other than Peter. So who was Satan going to go after with everything he had? None other than Peter. Jesus divulges how that will happen next in verse 38. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. In the same experience of, of this Last Supper, the gospel writer Dr. Luke records Jesus including also saying this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you men, all of you, all uh, 11 remaining of you, like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. He reveals to Peter that this is going to happen. Jesus knew that Peter's lack of faith would only be temporary. But he also knew that Satan had specifically asked God the Father for permission to sift Peter and the other disciples like wheat. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, this is a reference and background to the book of Job, where Satan wants to have Job found guilty before God's throne of judgeship. Sifting the wheat from the chaff or the rest of the dried up plants in this case would mean for Satan to try to shove in God's face just how much chaff or traitorous disloyalty and traitorous disbelief there really was in Peter's heart. While this was a unique experience for Peter and in the history of the world, we're going to go, th we're going to go through times of more targeted and stronger spiritual attack from Satan's kingdom. You may be feeling that now. You may have recently come out of that kind of experience or will be entering that experience. Recognize it for what it really is. Recognize it for what, uh, rec for what Jesus says it is here. As Jesus said, he would pray for Peter's faith not to fail and to come out stronger out the other side. That is what we must also address. If Satan sees you and your family 
living for Jesus and growing in your faith, do you think he's going to take that line down? No, not at all. So, what do we have to do? We have to be on the lookout. We have to be on the lookout for those attacks, recognize them for what they really are, and ask God for the strength and faith to make it through stronger than ever before. And remember this. The good news is that if you are going through intense spiritual attack, the enemy sees you as a threat and worth targeting. Remember that. That's the good news. As the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesian church, stand especially strong in the Lord's strength and the Lord's armor and keep standing firm. This is all part of living in this world with faith in Jesus. Don't be surprised about it. Recognize it for what it is and stand in the faith and in, prayer, in the power of prayer. This is all part of living in this world with faith in Jesus. We shouldn't be surprised about any of this, nor any of the other horrible things that may happen to us living in a sinful and evil world. I personally cannot wrap my mind around anyone who doesn't believe in God or doesn't believe in a heaven or hell and believes that this life in this world is all there is. I can't wrap my mind around that. That this is all we have? I don't know about you, but that is devastatingly depressing, isn't it? We live in an evil and dark world. There's no sugarcoating it. Cursed by humanity's sin. Nothing's going to get better as we know it. And God's word tells us that it's just going to keep getting worse and worse. Again, we shouldn't be surprised by that truth, nor shocked at the world simply turning more and more evil with each passing day. That is all just simply the human experience of living in this cursed, evil, and broken world. If this is all we had, that would be an incredibly depressing conclusion, would it not? This? This is it? And yet, that is how so many people are walking around the world with right now. As noted by one biblical scholar, that same feeling and outlook on life was exactly what the disciples around that table that evening 2,000 years ago were experiencing. Think about it. They were weighed down by all the negative things Jesus had just revealed to them. What, what has Jesus revealed to them up to this point already? that he was going to die soon, that one of them would betray him to that death, that as Luke records, Satan would be directly targeting all 12 of them, already got one of them. And as Jesus just revealed that Peter, the seemingly strongest faithful one out of all of them, would deny even knowing Jesus not once, not twice, but three times before the rooster would indicate the next day had even started. Put yourself in the disciples' shoes or sandals at that moment. I don't know about you, but I would be filled with a dread I had never felt before. A hopelessness, 
a darkness, a debilitating fear unlike I had ever felt. And you may be feeling that now as you look around yourself at the world and at what we can see coming down the road. Jesus could see that dread, hopelessness, darkness, depression, and debilitating fear on his beloved disciples' faces. And that's what directly flows into what Jesus reveals next, which is every bit as relevant and powerful to us today as Jesus' disciples facing spiritual attack and the darkness of the evil of this world as it was 2,000 years ago. Let's get into chapter 14 here. This is all part of the same conversation. Do not let your heart be troubled, Jesus says. Believe in God, believe also in me. Brothers and sisters, do not let your heart be troubled, even as you see how dark and evil this world is. As I've said before, having a biblically theological foundation will give you a lot of peace and spare you from a lot of fear and being troubled in spirit and heart in this world. That's the beginning of the peace-giving biblical theology that Jesus is about to give to his disciples. One biblical scholar notes that the second half of verse 1 is more of commands than statements. And I'm grateful that it's more of commands than statements. In this disturbing time, Jesus wanted to be abundantly clear and not have anything about what he was saying come across as hazy in any way. So by way of command, Jesus tells his disciples to trust in God the Father for what was happening and about to happen and to also trust in him for what was happening and what was about to happen. That exact same command is given to us as followers of Jesus today. Trust in God the Father's plan for us and trust in what Jesus' death and resurrection offers to us in every single way and especially for our future. That's the basic biblical foundation that's both a never-ending source of peace and one that will spare us from a lot of fear of what could happen to us in this world. With having the simple childlike trust in what Jesus' death and resurrection gives to us in that salvation from our sin, namely our eternal life, and the simple childlike trust in God's plan for us, as our foundation, we can face anything in this life and in this world. Jesus builds on that basic foundation of peace with what he says next in verses 2 through 3. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. As with a lot of other things, Jesus says, in parable form and using imagery, this is no different. Jesus simply uses the illustration of a loving father's household 
At that point in history, a beautiful and sprawling estate of an affluent person with lots of additions and rooms built onto it. The King James Version translates dwelling places or rooms as mansions, from which we get a lot of references in classic hymns to mansions in glory. But in the context of this mention of it, and the only other mention of it in John 14, 23, the emphasis is simply on a dwelling place or a room in God the Father's house. In the simplest of understanding in this context, it conveys more of a state. It conveys more of a feeling than actual mansions. It's not describing physical mansions here. It's describing more of a state or a feeling of this. That Jesus has gone to prepare a place, not only for those original disciples 2,000 years ago, but for every disciple of his after that point, a place where we know, experience, and feel loved, safe, protected, provided for, and cared for. It directly connects with another one of Jesus' parables, that of the prodigal son. The prodigal son had left the safety, protection, and provision of his father's household to willingly subject himself to the cold-heartedness and futility of the world. When he realized his sin and mistake, he just wanted, to, wanted nothing more than to return to his father's household for its most basic protection and provision. But when he returned, he discovered that his father had so much more in mind in celebration of his son's return to his love, safety, protection, and provision as his child. That's the feeling and experience Jesus is trying to convey here. Jesus comforts his disciples by telling them that this world, with all its evil, darkness, sin, and brokenness, is not all they have. It's not all they have, nor all they have to look forward to. No, while he will have to leave them through his crucifixion, subsequent resurrection, and impending ascension, he's not abandoning them to this world. When all is said and done and he ascends back to heaven to take his rightful seat at the right hand of God the Father, he will also prepare that place for all the souls of those who repent of their sin and take him as their savior from that sin and the rightful king over the rest of their lives. As one biblical scholar points out, the description of this place is not a description of its nature or what it would look like. The description of this place conveys its meaning and what Jesus' disciples could expect to experience and feel there. A place of belonging, true family, love, protection, and provision as a dwelling place in the household of our good and perfect Heavenly Father. Some people have been searching for a place to feel this their entire lives. The church is supposed to be a glimpse of this heavenly place of belonging. But we can have the peace of knowing that this place does 
fully exist. It's just that while we still have breath in this world, we're not there yet. That's all it is. But find your rest and find your peace in knowing that this place does exist. Jesus has prepared it for us. And if you've taken Jesus as your Savior and King in repentance of your sin, you'll be there someday. The Apostle Paul writes that to be present in these earthly bodies, we are absent from the Lord's physical presence and vice versa. That if we're not in these earthly bodies, we will be present with the Lord. This clearly means that when we take our last breath in this sinful world and our earthly bodies physically die, our soul, which Jesus died for, immediately goes to be with Jesus. Where? To this exact place of his father's household, of belonging, of peace, and love that Jesus is describing right here in our passage. Our earthly bodies remain on this earth in whichever state they were in when we died. Whether we die peacefully in bed, sink to the bottom of the ocean, are filled with bullets, or are obliterated or vaporized by some kind of explosive. I think a reason why Jesus describes this place with the emphasis more on the feeling and experience of it than a visible description is that that will be what our souls feel and experience when we go there immediately after we die. We don't know the extent of the consciousness of our souls uh, will experience with Jesus after death, but we know from Scripture that our souls will have some kind of consciousness, and in connection with Jesus' imagery here, it's the consciousness of the feeling of safety, complete peace, and knowing we are in the protection of Jesus' presence. How do we know our souls immediately go to this place Jesus is describing with basic imagery when we die? Because it's this, it's this exact same place he's describing when he refers to what will happen next in world history according to God's plan. Jesus says in verse 3 that since he's preparing this place for his disciples in his father's household and kingdom of heaven, he will come back to bring his disciples to it so that we can be with him forever. What is the scriptural event in world history where Jesus will come back to gather up his disciples to himself and as 1 Thessalonians 4 explains, so that we will also be with him forever? As verse 3 that in our passage this morning also explains. That universal world event is the rapture of the universal church of Jesus Christ. That is, any and all believers in him who put their trust in him for their salvation and who are filled with his indwelling Holy Spirit in order to live for him as king, who both died before that moment and who are still alive at that moment. Both 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 describe for us an event in which Jesus will partially return to this earth in the clouds and air, bringing back all the souls with him that he's been keeping safe with him in his father's household of heaven. 
that he described in verse 3. Jesus will reunite those souls with resurrected and put back together and glorified or perfected bodies free from sin, disease, and brokenness. Bodies fit to experience eternity with him. He will call up those believers to himself. Immediately after, he will call up those believers who are still alive and also give them the same glorified resurrection bodies. That's what verse 3 of this morning's passage is describing. The peace, confirmation, and confidence that Jesus will come back for those who trusted in him for their eternity. And guess what? Nothing else needs to happen prophecy-wise before that can happen. And so that could happen at any moment. At any moment, Jesus himself will rescue us from this evil world and bring us to the beginning of the new world. 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us that from that point forward, we will fully be with Jesus forever. When we line that up with what else the Bible explains as to what will happen at the end of this evil world, that means we will be with Jesus in his Father's household of heaven. In verse 3. During the entire time of what is described as the seven-year Great Tribulation period is raging on earth while we enjoy the wedding feast of the Lamb. At the end of that tribulation period of God pouring out his wrath on this evil world, what is called the Battle of Armageddon, Jesus will fully return to earth, annihilate the armies of the Antichrist, and set up his millennial kingdom on earth. Who were we promised to still be with that whole time? Jesus. Following him at his back while he destroys the kingdoms of this earth and then serving in various capacities with him in his millennial kingdom. Lastly, following the great white throne judgment of all those who never trusted in Jesus and are subsequently thrown into the lake of fire for all of eternity, the same apostle who wrote this gospel of John wrote in the book of Revelation that God revealed to him that there would be the coming of the new heavens and new earth where God will dwell with his people for all of eternity. This is why the author of Hebrews says this. For here, in this world, we do not have a lasting city. What we are seeking is the city which is to come. This world is not our home. We have been made for citizenship for the next world. The Apostle Peter writes that this current world in which we are now living will be destroyed one day in fire. And like Revelation says, we will be given a new and perfect world to live with God in for all of eternity. Living in this world, this evil and dark world, there will be a day, probably relatively soon, when Jesus comes back and gives us our glorified bodies. And that's the transition to the beginning of the new world. 
So what this does is when we take a step back from all of our personal problems and the evil of this world, this suddenly puts everything into a new perspective, doesn't it? I got nothing from you guys. When we think about all of this, that this world is not our home, it's going to be destroyed in fire. Jesus is coming back for us, will give us glorified bodies, and is transporting us to the new world. That suddenly puts everything in our lives now into a whole new perspective. Doesn't it? All right. Glad to hear you guys are still awake. It also gives us a new perspective on how we should be living in this current world, doesn't it? This world is not our home. We have been saved to live in the next and new world. So what does that mean for us now? We need to make our priorities in this world ones that are building treasures towards that next and new world, not building a life of treasures and this world that will only be destroyed and consumed by fire. This evil world will be judged and will be destroyed. Thanks be to God that he has provided us with salvation, not only for our sin, not only to eternal life, but salvation from this evil world. He's given us his Holy Spirit to strengthen us, to transform us, to remind us of who we are as his saved children of God and adopted into his family and remind us of all the promises we both now have and have to look forward to. What is death? What's the worst thing that could happen to us in this life? We die, right? What is that? Merely a portal into being with Jesus. Our soul entering into the Father's household of belonging, of safety, of provision. If we die before Jesus comes back, we're promised a place for our departed souls to be with him. Or we'll know we belong, or we know we're loved, and we're being kept safe. When Jesus comes back, we'll be with him in his Father's household of love for all of eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that especially in this dark and depressing and crushing world that we now live in, we know this is not all there is. This is not all that we have. And if anything, your word tells us our life on this earth is but a vapor. It's here and it's gone. And we've been made and we've been saved to live with you in, your fa in our Father's household for all of eternity. Father, let us look forward to that. Let us cast off all the things that threaten to ensnare us and trap us here on this earth. Help, help relieve our focus from the things of this earth and the things of this life. And refocus our hearts and our minds on the new new world that is coming for us. Lord, as the, apostle wrote to, as the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, let us set our mind on the things above, not on the things of this earth. Set our mind on the things above and leave it there. We are but pilgrims passing through this earth. Fill us with the peace and hope of what we have to look forward to. And while we still have breath on this earth, to do the work you have for us to do. I pray all these things in Jesus' name.